0: Relatively Geeky presents Doomspeak. Welcome back to Doom Speak, the ongoing chronicle of the fantabulous exploits of the world's leading leader, the rightful ruler of Latveria himself, Dr. Doom. And in this episode, we are continuing our look into how exactly Dr. Doom is dealing with his new responsibilities as a rightful ruler of the USA. Note to self, edit this part out, Alan, but you really should Google how to say proud to be an American in Latvian. We will be looking at Doom 2099, issues 30 and 31. But first, a little feedback. And last time we got our Doom on, we wrapped up his first storyline in Astonishing Tales. Billy D from The Brave and the Bob wrote in, Awesome coverage of the super cool Doom issues. I was able to grab these in singles before the market went haywire. Love the Wally Wood interpretation of old man Doomy. Looking forward to more. And the feedback segment was a great reminder of just how awesome our little corner of comic book fandom really is. Yes on Wally Wood, Billy, and also yes on all you lovely listeners. Gregory Litchfield said he had just recently read those two issues on Marvel Unlimited. I found Wally Wood's art to be astonishing. Sorry, he says, I couldn't resist. Now, I find the fact, Gregory, that I did not make that joke even once. I find that to be astonishing. Thanks for the comments. Sir Dr. Ange wrote in, catching up on podcasts. Loved Doom speak. Glad to hear that. And more importantly, Doom was glad to hear that, Doc. And then on our most recent issue dealing with Doom 2099, which you may remember... Dealt with politics and comic books. We heard from Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Professor Allen, I'm going to open with a joke. When you said that the Senate was owned by the Megacorps, I said, out loud, Wow, this comic is so realistic. It's a weak joke to be sure, but that's what popped into my head. This episode of Relatively Geeky Presents, was one of the most thought-provoking you have ever released. And because we've known each other for a while, I feel like I can have an open and honest discussion with you about some of the points you brought up. Yes, Michael, uh, we can have that open and honest discussion. First, on the subject of the megacorps owning the senators, the idea that certain senators were not referred to by the state they represent, but by the biggest company in that state. One of my favorites was Biden being the senator from the credit card companies. To me, when someone brings up senators and representatives being owned by a corporation, my mind goes to the word donors. And yes, certainly that is what Warren Ellis was jumping off from, Mike. The difference, in my mind, may boil down to semantics, but I think there is a distinction between serving your state and serving the interests of the people that give you money. I firmly believe that a senator or representative has an obligation to serve the interests of their district or state. So if a state deals in a lot of iron like Minnesota, you can bet that the people elected to represent the people of Minnesota are going to want to get the best they can for those companies because it is in the best interest of their constituents. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Mike, I would even add, there is something inherently positive about that. At least, that, I believe, was the intention of the framers. That's why each state gets two senators. And yes, sometimes sitting here in Ohio, it's annoying how two senators from Iowa can load up the budget with corn subsidies. Or how a couple of senators from West Virginia are focused almost exclusively on coal. But as you said, that is literally what they were elected to do. Mike continues, The problem comes when certain industries, oil, defense, big pharma, Start pouring their considerable wealth into a senator representative, and suddenly the concerns of that business become number one in terms of how they vote. This is a bipartisan issue because both Republicans and Democrats can share the same donor pool. So I'm honestly not blaming one party over the other. It's just that the needs of that industry seem to supersede the needs of their constituents, and that strikes me as wrong. My only addition to this, Michael would be to expand your definition of donor pool to go beyond corporations and include other interest groups, including public interest groups, including uh, lobbying organizations, unions, and other entities. As for politics and comics, Mike goes on, I 100% agree. All right, Mike, well, let's just stop there. I'm not sure what you have in the rest of these couple pages of email that you sent, but when you said you 100% agree with me, I think we can just move on to the What is that? Hmm? Sorry, I just got a message from the Latvian Podcast Feedback Council, and uh, for reasons they actually require that I continue going on with what you said, Mike, so this is on you, okay? And to be honest, I don't even know what a watch list is. (laughs) I 100% agree with both of your assertions, that comics have always been inherently political, and that there is more of a partisan feel to it these days. You mentioned that most of the people who say, I don't want politics in my comics, are really saying that they don't want the most partisan treatment of politics in their comics. And I actually agree with that to a large extent. Full disclosure, Mike says he doesn't read many modern comics, so his opinion here is all academic. Mike, as you may know, academic is one of my favorite words in all its meanings. And that is why, when I poke fun, Michael says, at the idea of comics not being political, I stick to the idea that I'm speaking about the people that don't believe comics should be political at all, full stop. It just shouldn't be there. It's probably a minority percentage of the overall readership, and I'm cheating here by referencing the feedback that Luke gave in the following episode. (laughs) I do find the idea that someone thinks that comics have never been political to be kind of silly. This isn't me trying to be a gatekeeper, trying to make it seem like I'm better than other readers. At least that's not my intent, but it is awfully fun to be snarky at times moving on to your feelings that certain fandoms and creators have made it clear that they don't want your business. I can't get behind that. I understand that groupthink is a thing and that creators are human and that humans can have strong beliefs, but it seems to me that in terms of entertainment, we should have more of a broad church. There are people in my podcasting circle that I have strong disagreements on, but there have been Very few times that i stopped talking to these people, and in the very, very rare instance, it didn't have anything to do with our political beliefs being different. A good example of this was driven home when I moderated a panel for an actor that had several successful television shows in the 90s and early aughts, but has, as of late, adopted a more zealous political outlook, let's say. The room for the panel was mostly full, And those people were there because of a character he played, not his political beliefs. This gets into a larger discussion of a person's own willing suspension of personal belief, but my point is that it is possible to like something and not like the personal beliefs of those who make that something, and that should go both ways. Maybe I'm weird, but since most of what we are into is supposed to be fun, It seems like trying to put too many rules and regulations in place is antithetical to that fun. Totally agree there, Mike. Yes, fun should be the rule of the day. I also feel bad that you don't feel welcome in some circles, but that's because we're friends. Thanks, Mike. You know, life happens. I feel like I'm rambling here at the end, but your episode has my mind running at 90 miles an hour. Maybe I'm weird in that I have a diverse pool of friends that I have invisible and unspoken non-aggression pacts with when it comes to certain subjects. I just don't get trying to drive people away. It's going to happen, but I feel like when it does, it shouldn't be intentional. Unless it's about mullets, but a man has to take a stand somewhere. A pleasure to listen, as always. Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Well, Mike here, in the interest of modeling open and welcoming behavior to listeners and feedbackers of all stripes, I will let your opinion about mullets, or specifically about non-mullets, stand without comment as hard as that is for me right now. Social media support for that last episode came from the podcast, A World on Fire, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, the Supergirl-themed KLD podcast, Keith G. Baker, Clinton from Fan Film Fridays, the Bat Pod, the Lady Laurel from the Hunter's podcast, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, the Telltale Mind, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Chris, the Charlton Hero, Jeremiah from ComicsComicsComics.blog, Sir, Iowa's Joe, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Komoda1977, Chris Lydon7, Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, Easy Comic Reader, Tardis Rider, Tie-In Reader, Leo the Cosmonaut, Roger Priebe Ed from Teal Productions, Mac the Comics Monster, and Derek, Derek W.C., from the history of comics on film. All right then, let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we come back, we'll be going back to the future of 2099. Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which Siskoid and his guests appoint themselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on them, because they can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. Great ideas? Yes, we think so. Cool reinventions? Of course. Crisis fatigue? We guarantee it. Who's Editing, now on its own feed, only at the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And we're back. Doom 2099 issues 30 and 31 were cover dated June and July 1995 respectively and each had a cover price of $1.95. For synopses, we'll run these together and then do the analysis afterwards, thanks to the doom2099.com website for providing synopses that I used as a jumping-off point for what follows. The cover of Issue 30, signed by Patrick Broderick, using his full first name, Shows a few dozen soldiers, a couple of tank-like vehicles, and a dozen or so jets in the sky. And over this militaristic image, Doom is doing what Doom does best. That's right. He's looming! We have the One Nation Under Doom seal on the cover, the story American Way, was written by Warren Ellis, with art by Pat Broderick, using not his full name on the inside credits, and John Nyberg. I will note that this is Pat Broderick's last issue as interior artist on the title. We start inside the White House, in the aftermath of Doom's ascension to the Oval Office, by Wright. Of revolution. Which does make you wonder how that amendment made its way into the U.S. Constitution somewhere here in the 21st century. I have won the war now. I must win the peace. As such, Do makes drastic changes to American life after removing the bodies from the White House lawn, that is. He orders and funds the construction of public dive booths, giving sea space access to everyone. And I'm sure that free, unlimited access to the internet seemed a revolutionary in 1995. On that general topic, Indigo calls him regarding the sudden change that they can now die in sea space. Doom gives her permission to question wire or as she calls him, that weird little sod, about all of that. The president then proceeds to a meeting in the Nixon room with the heads of the megacorps. They've been gathered together in the White House by Jake Gallows, Minister of Punishment, who, by the way, is also Punisher 2099. After calling them all worms, Doom announces that all their companies are immediately nationalized. Any assets left on their black card accounts are to be considered gifts to the government. All their companies will contribute to the construction of EMPs via federal contract. These are not electromagnetic pulses as the abbreviation EMP has come to mean over the last few decades. What we're talking about here are Doom's ecological maintenance platforms. Because whatever iteration of Doom you're talking about, since the early days, he has always been green. He warns the executives that their acts upon the American people will have consequences. As a demonstration of his new authority, Doom will kill one person in the room. And in his kindness, he gives them the power to choose who. All of this is strenuously objected to by Avatar, that's with two R's, because the 90s at the end of the 21st century bear striking resemblances to the 90s at the end of the 20th. Meanwhile, in Hell Rock, Sharp Blue struggles to find a way to save Hellrock, calling the place a gash in the American psyche. Doing so is the cornerstone of environmental policy, but she doesn't see how she can do it without utterly destroying the place. Outside the White House Ministry of Humanity, Morphine Summers takes a stroll, running into Nakrumah, a Wakandan who is the minister of enemy relations. Together, they run across a demonstration by Thoris, worshippers of Thor and other alleged Norse gods, to use Morphine's terminology. He also calls them basket cases. nakrumah explains that based on the Thorys' understanding of the heroic age, in other words, the age of comic book heroes, the age of hashtag big comics, big propaganda, to them, Doom would be a villain of satanic proportions. To them, the devil is in the White House. This is their protest. And it is a protest with echoes to a particular memorable moment during the Vietnam War as the Thories all set themselves ablaze in protest over the events of the last few issues. In the World Board room, we see the global reaction to Doom's great leap forward, which, not to repeat myself from the last time we talked about this series, is historically a really bad reference to make. I blame Doom's PR department for that one. But around the globe, we see net gliders being attacked in London. We see the Wakandan Queen's support of Doom being described as lukewarm. While the news from Latveria is that there's no news from Latveria. Radio silence. In the signal pit of the Libera Cielo, Wire the Net Glider sits alone in shock after learning that Xandra was a casualty in the attack on the White House. He vows to never come out of the signal pit ever again. And in the issue's final five-page scene, Doom first reminds the assembled corporate chiefs that he is to be addressed by his title, Mr. President. Then, he demands to hear the results of their deliberations, and they have voted or otherwise decided to kill Avatar. Avatar seems pretty surprised by this. And then he grows bold, claiming that Doom can't kill him. He goes on a rant, saying, All America is laughing at you. The whole world. Doom responds calmly and rationally by firing a laser from his index finger gauntlet right through one of Avatar's eyes. And on the last page, a splash page, we see lots of goop and gunk coming from that empty socket. To be continued. In issue 30, the cover of which is quite striking. A lot of similar colors between this and the prior issues. Dark blues and blacks and reds and oranges. A dozen jets are silhouetted against the black sky, dropping bombs. Cities are in flames at the feet of the Statue of Liberty. A distorted skeletal take on Lady Liberty, who in addition to holding her torch and her book, also has Doom's mask in one hand. I believe the implication is that she removed Doom's mask from her face to reveal the skeleton beneath. As we discussed last time, Warren Ellis was not the biggest fan of America at this time. This story, American Dream, the prior one was American Way, and actually the one before that was American Caesar. But this one is American Dream, written, of course, by Warren Ellis, with art by David Klein, who is noted inside this issue as guest artist. I have not looked ahead, so I don't know the status of the art over the remaining issues, if Klein lasts, or if we get a rotating crop of artists or if we do get a stable run from one in particular uh, now that Broderick has moved off the book. Now, broadly speaking, I will note that the art is a little simpler, a little more cartoony, lacking the details that Broderick and Nyberg often brought to their work. Also, although the lettering is by John Costanza in both books, in, in this later one, in issue 31, it seems heavier, darker, and also, again, a little more cartoony. Same guy, same editorial team. So I don't know what that change is about, but it is definitely a change. Issue 31 starts at that exact spot, except that instead of yellowish goop coming from where avatars eye uh, used to be, it is a distinctly green, almost glowing goop. Alien, one might even assume. Interesting, Doom notes as Avatar refuses to fall to the ground, refuses to, you know, die. The laser I fired into your head was, it seems, an underestimation. Doom scans the wound And discovers that Avatar is in fact an alien. And even stranger, an alien unlike any alien Doom has ever run across. Avatar rises enough to spit on Doom, which is not just offensive, it's also offensive. As in, it's an offensive attack via hallucinogenic acid. Avatar's body also demonstrates the ability to regenerate after the attack. So, when Doom cuts into his torso, sharp spikes grow out of the wound, and one of those even penetrates the eye slits in Doom's mask. Doom immediately begins to feel the effects of the hallucinogenic, and everything around him turns into a kaleidoscope, of colors. Cue the getting stoned music. Avatar calls Doom a lungfish, a wet, unevolved thing gulping in the oxygen of power you were never meant to know. How dare you claim to be better than me? The alien strikes Doom down, telling Gallows the Minister of Punishment to stand down, as he works for Avatar now. But as Avatar tries to grab the leadership for himself, pulling the old Alexander Haig, Doom arises like a phoenix and deals that dirty, stinking alien a fatal blow. He then proceeds to repeatedly Crack Avatar into a green, bloody pulp. The message is simple. Doom surmounts all. He needs gallows to help him up. The nanoids are drawing on my own metabolism to power their purge of the enzyme, and it has left me without strength. He wants to be taken to Indigo. And he instructs the remaining staff in the room to grab the alien cadaver and drag it to the White House communications suite, which sounds like just about the worst idea ever, doesn't it? I mean, spoilers. Someone in that room, maybe one of the executives, maybe a staffer, maybe security. It wasn't really clear to me. Whoever he is, he is rocking back and forth, trying to make sense of all that he has seen. It can't be true, can it? No such thing as space aliens. Just like all the heroic age fables. Blind vigilantes in red leotards. Magicians on Bleecker Street. That never happened. This is fake. Doom's mad. This is a fake Congratulations, Mr. Unidentified Character. You are wrong on almost every count. Now look, I'm not here to judge. And personally, I've never seethed with drug-induced anger. However, I'm guessing that drug-induced anger is probably not the best frame of mind to be in for important decision-making. I say all that because, seething with drug-induced anger, Doom proceeds to address the nation, going so far as to put Avatar's alien corpse on display on live TV. TV which, turning away from, is illegal, by the way. Which I'm pretty sure Comcast is trying to accomplish here in our day. Doom points the blame for a decade of American misery under the megacorps at the people and orders a tithe for restitution. He also ups the martial law, adding more lockdowns and mandates. His comms team is hoping that he will stop. They won't understand, one of them says. And finally, Doom passes out. In the days that follow, a range of Doom's proposals are implemented. Dive booths are built on every corner, giving the free online access he promised. EMPs are launched, immediately improving the environment. And alone in the Oval Office, Doom talks to himself, or maybe he's talking to the decapitated head of Avatar, which he keeps with him in the Oval Office office. I simply wanted to show the American people the terrible extent of their stupidity, to have not only allowed, but to have not even noticed an alien assuming authority in a megacorp. It was the drugs. I lost control. Again, not here to judge, but when it comes to doom, I am not a fan of the excuse-making. Outside the Oval Office, Indigo ponders on how to tell Doom that his address has trashed his credibility. Morphine points out that while everyone is upset over the address and Doom's image, what many people fail to notice is that during the address, he ratcheted up the martial law. Ask him whether that supposed alien juice drove him mad or simply removed a facade. And then on the last page, we see ominous, purpley, pinkish clouds over the White House. Gold chemical rain falls down on the White House like gunfire. There is the faint hint to screams among the martial drum rolls of thunder. Something is coming under cover of the storm. The end. First thing to point out is the quotations. Warren Ellis is continuing the John Francis Moore tradition of ending each issue with a quote. Issue 30 ends with Diogenes. In a rich man's house, there is no place to spit but in his face. That one was directly tied to the actions of 31, actually Kind of a spoiler for the next issue. And issue 31 ends with a quote from Antonin Artaud Every dream is a piece of suffering torn out of us by other beings. That one just seems emo. Before we get too far, I want to mention that I recently read the 2099 World of Doom special, which despite having a cover price of $2.25, was primarily a reference book for the 2099 universe at this time, meaning its primary purpose was marketing, to generate enthusiasm for these titles, to generate purchases across the 2099 line. In this era, the One Nation Under Doom era, did go across the entire line, which makes sense. All the books would be impacted. So again, this, uh, this comic, this resource, uh, this issue, looks at all the titles in the line, I think it was six titles at the time, where they were in their storylines, and how the events in Doom 2099 were going to impact all of those titles. So as Doom-heavy as this special is, and I think it was extra-sized, 40 pages maybe, It gives me a lot of information that I will use in this and in following episodes. So I wanted to give credit to my resources. Two items in particular from this source book I want to mention. First, there is an 11-page open letter from Doom labeled his Contract with America. If you remember, the election of 1994... Remember, this book came out in 1995. The election of 1994 included a surprising change of hands in the House of Representatives, changing the party in power for the first time in 42 years. So that contract with America terminology uh, may ring a bell uh, to those of you of a certain age. So a power shift like that after four decades was kind of a shock that campaign did include a contract with America. So this is clearly a reference to that. And, and using that language in this context makes it clear, if it wasn't already clear, exactly where Warren Ellis's sympathies lay regarding U.S. politics. Now there's a lot in Doom's contract which is interesting. This is the new code for the country. I'm not going to get into the details, just uh, maybe mention things as they arise in the storylines of the comics. But the best part of the contract is that at the bottom of the the cover letter, it is signed, Dr. Victor Von Doom, President, USA. Finally. Affirmation, baby. Because if someone in high government office, or married to someone in high government office, wants to be called doctor, the only appropriate thing is to call them doctor. No questions allowed. It's official. Doctor Victor Von Doom. Thank you. This book also contains an interview with Warren Ellis. And there's one thing in particular that I want to pull out of that, because it's something we talked about on a recent episode. And that's the process of the 2099 handoff from John Francis Moore to Warren Ellis as the writer. I expressed curiosity about how that all happened, what the the process was, whether there were notes, an outline, uh, 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 whatever. How did Moore get story credit, but Ellis get scripting credit on those two issues? But I missed the most obvious possibility, the one that it, in fact, turned out to be, because these are Marvel books. And even though not everyone was working on the Marvel method at this point, John Francis Moore was utilizing the Marvel method. And because the lead time on comics, the production time, is so long, note to self, I have a story about that, But it takes so long to produce these issues by the time Moore had been relieved of his duties on Doom 2099. Issues 24 and 25 were already in process. So Ellis got the art and realized he had some scripting to do, while the story credit itself went to Moore. Like I said, this was a time when not everyone at Marvel was continuing to use the famed Marvel method, and Warren Ellis admitted that it was pretty weird and certainly a new experience for him to write dialogue over someone else's plot line, over someone else's story. So, mystery solved as to how that transition took place and in the way that the credits reflected that manner of transition. Now to divert to tell a story I recently heard about the drawn-out process of creating a comic book, whether it's under the Marvel method or not. The story I heard was over at D.C. that they had been contacted by a U.S. senator to produce a PSA comic on a particular you know, public policy issue that was important to this specific senator. So he ended up you know, contacting D.C. and directing funding Towards the company to get this done, you know, contracted with them to create a comic book, and I think it featured Batman. So it was going to be a a big deal. And the way the story goes, I heard this from someone who was at DC at the time, was that after a few days, the senator called the editor to demand to know where the comic was, and then he proceeded to call a couple times every week to know where the comic was. Because as slow as things can move in the federal government sometimes, think about an IRS refund as an example, or the line at a social security office, things evidently move even slower in the comic book world. We know this as readers. Scripting, to pencils, to inks, to lettering, to colors, with editorial checks at every stage. So yeah, it takes a while. Okay, back to these two issues. I don't really have a lot to say. There are a couple of references I wanted to make uh, from these issues. First, as of 2023, as of recording this, I do not believe that there's a Nixon room in the White House. But it does make you wonder what it was that brought Nixon back into good enough graces for that to happen. Maybe his creation of the Environmental Protection Agency is eventually recognized for its importance or his outreach to China. Who knows? We contain multitudes. Sometimes a president who is beloved also sets up internment camps for Japanese Americans. And sometimes one who is reviled sets up the EPA. Also, I mentioned the protest outside the White House were a group of thories, which I'm sure in this fictional universe is a slur, but I don't think it is an hour, so I think I can use that word. It's confusing, and I apologize for any offense, but they, in a coordinated event, all light themselves aflame, death by their own hand, via self-immolation. There is a history of this in our world as a dramatic method of protest. At a Saigon intersection in 1963, a Buddhist monk performed this act as a protest against the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government. The photo of the event went viral, I mean the 1963 version of viral, eventually, winning the photographer an International Photo of the Year Award. Other Buddhists in the country were inspired to follow in the monks' footsteps, and at least four other uh, non-Buddhists, Westerners, followed suit throughout the 1960s in specific protest against the Vietnam War. So that is what Ellis is drawing inspiration from in that scene. Our good podcasting buddy, Tom Panneris, talked more about that event in his coverage of the Marvel comic, The Nom, in the In-Country podcast, episode 85. This podcast series is fully wrapped up now, but episodes are still available on the Two True Freaks internet radio network. But what of Doom and how he is portrayed here? These issues do not represent the apex of his behavior, of his leadership. Maybe it was the drugs, the hallucinogen. Maybe it was just the stress he's been under recently. It's not easy taking over a whole country. And sure, he's done better. He's behaved better. But it's going through the valleys that make us appreciate the mountaintop experiences all the more. So what I'm saying is, yes, I have mixed feelings about these ones. I think that Ellis has really nailed one important element of Doom that needs to be mentioned here during his run, and that is Doom's sheer pettiness. In a lot of ways, it drives him. It gives him direction. It gives him focus. In the regular world, this often motivates him regarding a certain stretchy fella, a guy who is just... So darned annoying. But I do think that Ellis faced a real challenge in writing these issues, because there are things that Doom does here policy-wise that I think Ellis fully supports if if a British PM or a U.S. president implemented them. Personally, I think nationalizing industries is almost always a horrible idea. But it is an idea that has fans in the real world among those on that side. So I think he probably likes that. Obviously, cleaning up the environment with a snap of the fingers would be on his agenda. So it's tricky. When you have the chance to write a powerful leader, you can see how it would be tempting to have him do the things you would do or support in a strong leader. Because sometimes it takes, again, let's say a strong leader to get done the things you want done. Of course, it's kind of funny how it's only authoritarianism when the leader tries to do things that you don't want done. When it's something you do want done, even if it's well beyond the authority of the office, somehow that's not authoritarianism. Matter of fact, it's an outrage when the leaders' efforts to overstep their legal authority to do something you want are halted by those other pesky branches of the government. I think I've mentioned this before, but where is the Supreme Court in all of this? They do have final say about presidential action, presidential power and authority, and have for well more than 200 years now, since the days of Marbury v. Madison. Ellis gave a nod to the Congress in an earlier issue, though he got the veto details wrong. But I don't remember a single reference to the judiciary, the third branch of U.S. government. Maybe that's more reflective of the way British courts act, what Ellis is used to, and a lack of understanding of the U.S. system in detail. I just don't know but there would certainly be a district court somewhere that would order a nationwide injunction or two about all these actions, or or Doom would face a Supreme Court defeat in getting some of this implemented. Now, of course, Doom does some things here that I imagine nobody in 1995 or 2023 would approve of. That's kind of why sometimes he gets called a villain, or even a supervillain. So I do think it's kind of a tightrope walk for a writer, balancing those impulses, the impulse for Doom to be, well, let's say, confident in his worldview and certain about the validity of his own power grab, while also wanting to show the sort of things a leader should be doing with this much power. So I do have trouble making sense of all of Doom's motivations here, although there are some interesting bits. For sure, I like the idea that Doom's staff is worried about his nationwide popularity. I mean, I don't think that he's planning to hold an election anytime soon, so... But that did get me thinking. How exactly did Doom staff up that White House? Where did he go to get these folk? Are they the permanent staff, the professional bureaucracy, the tenured government employees that serve whoever is in power, whoever's in the Oval Office? I know that nobody cares about that, but still I wondered. And I like that there's an intriguing mystery at the end of Issue 31, the implication being that something, something is coming. Change is in the air. I hope the alien subplot goes somewhere, and I'll also be interested to see who the artist will be on upcoming issues, and how that all shakes out. And whether the art in the future more reflects issue 30, which I liked, much more than 31, which, not as much. And I expect that is all stuff that we will talk about next time we head back to 2099. But I think the next time we revisit the activities of our good doctor, I think we'll be back in the early 70s, digging back into astonishing tales. Or maybe something else we shall see. And not sure when that will be. We have changes happening in the network, shows ending, shows starting. But fear not, doom will not be gone long from our airwaves. I say that because I tried that once. You're familiar with the concept of rendition, right? Enhanced interrogation and all that. So yeah, that's not going to happen again. If you have any feedback on this episode, either of these issues, the world of 2099 or anything related to our good doctor, the rightful ruler of Latveria, and the good old USA, don't hesitate to contact me. You can do that via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on a Facebook or blog post for this episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening, take care, and hail Doom! Hail Doom!